Hi, everyone. Hello. Hi. Welcome Hi. to episode three of Women's Black Women's Hour. That was wrong. Um, how is everyone? We've got some amazing guests today. How's everyone feeling? Fantastic. Do you all want to introduce yourselves? Um, so my name's Elaine Adepoku and I am based in Northwest London. I'm a digital marketer and a friend of Ava. <laughs> I thought you could say friend of Dorothy there. That would have been funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, but and you run a black woman's uh, book club, don't you, Elaine? Yes, I do. Sorry, I run a book club called Let's Read and it's been going for 10 plus years and we read books of black interest or by black authors and that means that it's quite broad so it would include people like Dorothy Coombson, Alex Wheatle, um, Breeze and we have do have authors come down as well to talk about their books and what inspires them so it's yeah it's really good and we meet yeah. once a week third Monday of the month and have as a member and is yet to come. I'm, I know I know <laughs> we'll do this here. Ash, hi. Hey, I don't have a book club. I wish I did something as wholesome with my time. <laughs> it's Ash Shakar. You've seen her everywhere. She's from Navara Media. And we're lucky to have her today because she doesn't feel well. Yeah, and I was yucking my guts up last night. There was no dignity. Absolutely. What was left in me that was pure and holy is now gone. <laughs> Oh, we're getting an announcement here. We're getting a Black Woman's Hour exclusive. Are you up the duff? Oh, God, no. I hope not. <laughs> if this is how I found out, is that you trolling me on a podcast? I'm like, <laughs> am I pregnant? That would be... It's hardly like the angel Gabriel coming to Mary and, yeah. you know... It's just Ava going, you up the duff. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually, I think, you know, the famous bit of the Bible. One of my favourite lines. <laughs> Hi, my lovely psychic Aisha. How are you? Hey, good, thank you. Apart from the technical glitches, um, love the man in this house, but um, he likes things to be really good technically. And so therefore we end up with like speakers and a mic and lights and it's all very serious. But now we're just back on the laptop. You've <laughs> <laughs> the tech expert. Oh, honestly. Yeah. So how's everyone getting on in lockdown? On, I, I managed to put one of my twists back on to, um, a couple of days ago. My hair is actually heading towards Robbie G's in small acts. Like as we're recording this in lockdown, you're just going to see me deteriorate. <laughs> okay, so I'm not going to hair shame you. I haven't been to a hairdresser since 2019. So all the twists that you see are done by myself. I feel hair shamed. <laughs> and, um, I've, I've got a nail addiction and as um, we're not allowed to go to nail shops anymore, I've now had to get a lamp and I'm doing, I've managed my feet and I'm going to try and do my hands and if it's rubbish, I'll never do this again. I had to, I had to give up my nails in lockdown one because I loved having like my long acrylics and like my gel on top and I, I just sort of liked it to like clack around, yes. do you know what I mean? Just like there's something like plasticky yeah. and satisfying about like the noises my hands would make and lockdown one happened and I was like don't know when this will be over so I got like a nail drill and stuff to take it all off and I fucked up my nails so royally that they've like only just recovered yeah. from what I'd put I them brought through. all the stuff that Elaine brought but I've just never used it like I'm minus three nails now and it's like you have a lamp you have the acrylics you have I was just it's probably like like uh psychological thing but I was like I have to always have my nails done otherwise my hands look like my dad's and it freaks me out I hate my dad 
and you know, issues, issues, issues. And then afterwards, I was like, I just can't be bothered. I will get them done though. Do you know, I have got the lamps, but my four-year-old Mimi is the only one who used it to get her toes and stuff done. She loves it. How are you, Aisha? How's the grooming going? You look great always, anyway. Thanks, honey. You look lovely too. The nails are goners. Um, I was very similar to you, Ash. On the, I love the clack. I would get them done so that I could sit there and go like this solely for my own benefit, with nobody else's benefit. And I had to tear them off in lockdown one and they recovered and I had to tear them off in lockdown two. And I've kind of got that bump halfway up, you know, with the damage. Mm. Yeah, I'm just nodding in agreement. There's a lot of nodding here. Yeah, so there's that. And also my son looks like he's raised by a white woman at the moment. So um, hair wise, grooming wise in our house, he looks like nobody has any Afro jeans in this house. So you know, just on the grooming from, yeah, that's where we're at. You know, we look um, interesting every day. This is a lot for me right now. Oh, you look very nice. Everybody looks very nice. Everyone does. How, we all, all right mentally? I had a panic attack a couple of days ago and I was just like pretty down and like was just like, oh my God. Like we're just, I always said, I think I said it on the first episode, like um, ethnic minority people are always going to cope better with lockdown because our parents never let us do a damn thing. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like the only difference in this lockdown thing for us is we can actually get food for the fridge. Because remember, <laughs> when you're young, you touched that fridge and you opened it, like the cussing you would get. So it's like, my God, I'm in my like room all the time, like when I was younger, but I can eat what I want. So that was, that was good. But I think it was just, I think when you're in the kind of industry I'm in, we are panicking because I was actually going to go back to Edinburgh Festival for the first time in 10 years this year. That's just, we can't see that happening. Like work-wise, Ash, I still see you. You do Navarra Media, so you kind of got your own thing. Yeah, I mean, like everything has shifted onto remote pretty well, apart from teaching. So I'm a, I'm a lecturer at a university in Amsterdam, and you feel like a terrible person because these poor students are just being scammed out of their money by these institutions. And by participating in and maintaining the fiction that I can teach you is just, I feel like I'm shaking them upside down for their lunch money or something and like over the year just seeing them get more and more depressed on zoom um you feel like you're actively participating in a bad and unethical thing because you're like oh god i'm just bumming you guys out they are having a bad time my son's um at uni and he's just like this course cannot be taught remotely properly he's he misses the gym he's a rugby player he's missing playing you know the games he's missing because the gym really, you know what I mean, calms him down. (laughs) So he's getting stressed. He's running a lot, but then because he's a rugby player, he doesn't want to lose that size by doing Mm. that amount of cardio. It's just like, oh God, I'll just try and send you some weights. So for the the pupils who are, um, or students, because they're in university, um, if they are in universities away from home, are they still being expected to be near their university? I think it's different in different places. Like most of my students are international students. So they moved to Amsterdam for the two years of their course. So lots of them are like very far away from home. In this country, because you had the sort of hostage situation of like last year where all the students went to halls, all the students were like near the institution. And then they were told like, you can't leave. Um, because otherwise you're going to like take infection back to like your homes I think that's changed now so lots will be doing it from home where if that home is by the university because they you know live in a house share or 
Well, my, my boy got caught out because around Christmas, it was like his area where he stayed with his dad turned to tier two. Like, you know, when he did it really suddenly. Yeah. Like, because I think we did the show at Vauxhall Tavern, then the next day London went to tier two. I had a friend, like, uh, I was going, oh, such a shame, we're supposed to go to dinner. You're... And then it was like, you're going as tier two the next day. So my son jumped in his car and drove to his university, uh, which was staying in tier two so he could use the gym and he could hang out and stuff. And then he got switched to tier four and he's fuming. <laughs> <laughs> Came all the way down here to just do, yeah. So that hostage situation, honestly, that was bad. Like last September, I was like, I didn't go and pick up my child. And then I saw like the rates of COVID for uni students. I was like, stay there, son, I miss you. <laughs> <laughs> like waving through the prison bars, like. Yeah. When they have the post-mortem about all of this, um, and they see how great our Prime Minister is because he's a legend. Um, I think he's going to go down in history as the most successful PM ever for his crisis management, which matches his hairstyling. And that's where I'll leave it because obviously... You, not... you probably will, though, because it's just, have you seen the polls? Mm. They're way ahead in the polls still. And uh, sometimes I just think in the last few years, we've just got to the point, which will lead us into our first story, like of just so much misinformation like we saw it through the Corbyn years, we saw it through the Trump years, that people just don't know anymore. And you would go up and like, you'd see Trump talking about drinking bleach and stuff. And I remember speaking to this woman who I didn't know was a Trump fan who I um, avoid now, but like, she, I was trying to tell her about, she goes, oh God, he was just being sarcastic. Oh, I really love the way he, this is a black woman, by the way, he exposes fake news and stuff. And I just thought, we've just got to the point now where I don't think it matters what you say when it comes to certain subjects, there's people, who are so stuck in lying and they will lie in your face. It's just like a worldwide kind of gaslighting thing is going on right now. I mean, I think what happened is that it was a long process of the degradation of the public sphere. And if you want to talk about fake news or if you want to talk about, you know, the death of accountability, you know, look no further than the war in Iraq and the complete lack of consequences for everyone who drove the country to the invasion. There were no consequences whatsoever. Chilcot report, report comes out. It's pretty damning. And because the press didn't want it to be the end of Tony Blair in public life, it was like, oh, that's fine, just shrug it off. And then when you've got, when things have gone that far, obviously you are gonna have populists coming in and taking advantage of it. But it was something that was going on kind of like rather than from the margins, it was happening at the centre for a really, really long time. Yeah. Um, I want to ask a question as somebody who isn't a journalist or in that space, why is it called populism? Why do we keep on rebranding things that are racist <laughs> and like giving it like um, fancy names? Because populist makes it sound like... Yeah, racism is quite popular. Yeah. <laughs> I, I use the word populist um, to get across something specific, which is this isn't someone who's come from a traditional political avenue. So if you're like Donald Trump or even if you're like, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, you had this relationship to a movement which existed outside of, you know, parliament or congress or you know factions which were already recognized within a party. So that's how I use the word. It's like quite in a limited sense. Yeah. Um, you can be a racist populist or you can be a left populist. You can be, you know. Okay. Other adjectives okay. will 
come along. No, 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 I understand. I understand completely. Well, speaking of that, we're just going to talk about a couple of things that happened this week. Aisha, do you want to pull up the slide? Because yesterday we had a great example of this um, where we had a Tory MP basically. Have you got it? Yeah, uh, just starting now. Yeah. Yeah. So we need uh, to bring up Kemi. Kemi is actually a Tory MP. She's Minister for Equalities, right? Yes. Right. I um, I can't see. Can everyone see it? No, it's still in the Black Women's Hour slide. It should come up. It's moved on mine. I guess there's a slight delay. Sorry. It's all right. So Kemi Badenoch, who is a Tory MP, I was actually surprised to hear she was 41. She looks good. She looks young. Look at that picture. She looks about 25. I was thinking, and I was just looking at her and thinking, one day soon, the ancestors are going to snatch those useful looks if you carry on with your life. Portrait in the attic. (laughs) She's got the vibe of like a third year pharmacology student. Yeah, she looks, she didn't think she was 41 with three children. I wouldn't think so anyway. Three children? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was thinking, you know, because remember Stacey Dash? Yes. 27 in Clueless, and she looked great forever until she went on Fox News. And the ancestors just came when she was sleeping and got her youthful looks and went, thank you, be taking that back. That's going to happen to Kemi soon, right? Um, Kemi is actually someone we have invited on the show and she didn't say it straight up, no. She said that um, her diary was busy at the moment, but we could come back. She might not come after this, but (laughs) I would be interested in speaking to her, actually, because yesterday uh, Kemi put out a tweet which could be put... uh, What I'm finding is it's like... These days, people call anti-racist racist. Like, we've just got no sense anymore. Do you understand what I mean? And, like, you see it when you talk about transgender issues. There's just people who come in with misinformation, and they're so, as we say in the Caribbean, wrong and strong. And if you sit there arguing with him, with them, it will actually drive you mad. So, Kemi put out this tweet yesterday and said, Today's an unfortunate reminder of why there's so much confusion and mistrust. Was in meetings all day yesterday, and I've been made aware of two emails received by HuffPost journalist Nadine White. Okay, Nadine White um, is a fantastic journalist. And she's one of the only journalists sort of in the mainstream, if you want to call HuffPost mainstream, she's like, it is, you know, almost. Mm -hmm. Pretty much, if you call HuffPost mainstream. Um, She does a lot of stories about the black community. Um, she's, She's a really good journalist. She stays on top of everything. I think she's absolutely amazing. Um, So Kemi uh, put up, as you can see here, Nadine's emails where she was asking, because there was a number of black um, cross-Tory MPs that did a video who were trying to address the fact that black people don't really trust having the vaccine. And Kemi wasn't in it. And maybe because of Kemi's um, attitude to certain things, there was a rumor that was going around saying that Kemi had refused to be in it. So Nadine emailed her and asked her for comment. And uh, Kemi decided to respond on Twitter and basically got Nadine trolled so hard that she had to lock her account down. And it's really unfortunate that she decided, I mean, first of all, she shouldn't have been doing that in the first place. Why would you as a minister then go on? But it seems to be a bit of a pattern with Kemi. Kemi seems to like attacking other black women. Um, the other journalist she's attacked in the past was uh, Rihanna Crocs. Is that her name? Is that for, or is it Coxford, I think. Coxford, yes, yeah, sorry. It's I'm just coming on your screen now. Yes. Um, Rihanna had done a story previously and Kemi had, 
you know, gone publicly and tried to rubbish her, basically because Rihanna was trying to hold her to account. Prior to that, she said that Rennie Edo Lodge, the author of We Why I Stop Talking to White People About Racism, was basically trying to promote living in a segregated society. It's like her stepdad's dad, her stepdad's white, her boyfriend's white. I don't think she wants to, unless they did something to her that we don't know about. Like, she's never promoted anything like that. And I do find it quite interesting that how many right-wing black people spend their time attacking other black people. And I think we are sailing into quite very, quite dangerous territories. And it's in the South Asian community as well. You will see them, um, Ashley's like nodding along. Well, so we, <laughs> Maniacally. Exactly. So we have some very high profile South Asian people doing the exact same thing. And it's, it's worrying to me. It's very worrying to me. And I think when I saw the sight of Black Labour MPs versus what, uh, Black Tory MPs arguing about whether we should teach Black History Month and the Tories were just, you know, Bim was talking about, oh, I went to Utrecht and, uh, you know, it was just like, what are you guys actually doing? And I just saw the white MPs sort of sitting back smiling, literally. I just thought, my, this is like divide and conquer just happening in front of our very eyes. What do you, you know who, who's brilliant on this exact phenomenon is Musa Okwonga, who's uh, a yeah. writer yeah. and journalist. Um, he's one of those people who's just got like a gift for turn of phrase. And every time I like read his work, I go, you fucking bitch. Like, I <laughs> wish I could have put it like that. And he talks about the role of the racial gatekeeper. So yeah. people of color who are elevated to positions of power, whose role is specifically to, you know, delegitimize anti-racist movements and discourses and to be the person who gives white people permission to be racist mm -hmm. because before it was just you know white Tory MPs like saying this stuff and they're like oh this actually looks really bad but if we get black and brown Tories to say this stuff no one can call us racist and because we've got like the dumbest fucking public sphere on the planet where, you know, there's very little critical thinking, there's very little, you know, scepticism in the press, they'll go, well, they've got a point, that is a black person I can see, so how yeah. could they be, you know, standing up for white supremacy? Riddle me this. Exactly. Uh, I just always say they're going to use us to hurt us, and I see so many examples of it, as you say. Musa's really interesting because of his background. Mm. Okay, Musa went to Eton, like there's very few black people who go through that boarding school experience and come out unscathed. <laughs> and I didn't notice that, but what I was thinking as well, I'm wondering if it's a class thing because I was kind of thinking about what I noticed throughout school, but I never had a way of, I didn't have the language to articulate it, was it was very rare that I would come up again, see another black person at boarding school. It was normally me and my brother, or, you know, after I got expelled a few times, it was me <laughs> and maybe one Nigerian kid and stuff like that. But I do remember always when, so when you play sports in um, public school, private school, whatever, you only play other public schools and private schools. You, you don't play, you don't come into contact with state school children. So if we would play a netball match or a rugby match, it would, there might inevitably be one other black person. And I just remember how they used to set us up against each other. And I remember seeing it so often, like if there was another black girl on the netball team, it'd be, oh, what do you think of her? What do you think of her? And I always found it a little bit 
sort of uncomfortably weird. And I do remember like when we were reeking and my brother was a good rugby player and he was in Bailey's house and it was right next to the rugby pitch. I do remember like all these people holding my brother back, like literally the whole rugby team's holding back my brother. And on the other side, they're holding back one guy and it's the only other black guy, right? And I swear, every time I saw it happening, and I remember when I was at prison service training college, I find it like in these certain institutions, and we were talking about this. There was like four black people, and one, like, there was a prison governor with us at the time, he's gonna go on to be a prison governor. And he said to me, let me show you something. And he said, let's sit together at lunch. Sit together at lunch, for no, we just wanna sit together and see what happens. And so I was like, oh, okay. So we sat together at lunch, like the four, maybe five black people that were there. And the looks, he was going, look at it, look at it, look at it, look at, people were like looking like what's going on over there. And I remember afterwards, there was another woman who was going on, she was on Accelerate Promotion to be a prison governor. And she came up to me afterwards, she goes, is everything all right? And I went, yeah. She went, um, why were you lot just sitting together? I said, we just wanted to sit together. And she goes, what were you talking about? I said, we we're just talking about stuff, like childhood stuff and just cultural stuff. And she looked at me and she went, I find that really sad that you felt the need to do that. And the amount of people that were so angry about it. And I do wonder if this is what's, do you know what I mean? Like, if this is what's going on with these black and brown people, because we spoke a bit about a representation last, last, um, last show. And I'm wondering if they feel to exist in that space that they have to behave like this because they just tend to go for other black people. And it's just, it's embarrassing. It could also be a case of crabs in the barrel as well. Um, because I guess if you're used to being the only one, you may not want other people to come up behind you and take away your uniqueness. Um, with regards to, um, the MP in question, I do find like a lot of what she says quite strange. Um, I was born and bred in Britain. I don't understand what school system she went through because her experiences seem to be so, the, the comments that she makes are very, very alien to anything that I've ever encountered before. And I have been a black, one of the few, if not the only black person at school in my year at university where there weren't that many of us. And when I've been working, it's also all tends to be like one of a few. So she's African like myself. You've come, your parents are your first generation. Even if you're wealthy, your parents must have struggled a bit. They must have felt like an other. So I don't understand how you can be so forgetful to what they must have seen unless they were so clouded by what what they have would have encountered because I can't nobody in this country who's of a certain age can tell me that they have never experienced anything racist or even a slight microaggression even if you mix with people who are from other ethnicities as you because just by way of design and the way that we are we will say certain things without thinking sometimes whether it's the unnecessary touching of the hair or um, when I was at university I went to Bristol Sorry, when I, was, when, when I went to Bristol, somebody asked me if I had been accepted into my university as one of their affirmative action programs. That was on my first day. So even if she went to a public school, so I don't know about her background, and then she entered into one of those institutions, 
she must have heard these conversations. And I'm just going to say, because I looked up her background, she was actually born in London, but she spent her childhood in Lagos, Nigeria, and the United States. I don't know how much time she spent in each. But this comes to something that um, we had um, Cindy Hansen on last week, and she pointed out um, that people who are born and maybe born, but certainly raised in Nigeria or Ghana or any of the African countries, and I find this with Caribbean people a lot, they have a lot less sympathy for racism. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's the same in the South Asian community, Ash? Um, I mean, I think that the, you know, because there isn't one South Asian community and it's so stratified by class within that. So the experience of a Bangladeshi or a Pakistani is, is likely to be very, very different from like if you're a Hindu Gujarati, because the waves of migration had such different roles in the economy here. It meant they were subject to different kinds of discrimination. They were able to, you know, assimilate into the middle classes to greater and lesser degrees. And so you do have those who are, you know, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, why couldn't you? And the story there quite often is that, well, you were part of the bourgeoisie back home in India. You came here and there was a fall in your status, but you still had the cultural capital. You still had the background, which meant that you could, you know, mm -hmm. go into medicine or go into dentistry or go into, you know, one of those white collar professions, you know, and that it's not a story in the same way of, you know, a working class Sileti who was working class in Silet and then came here and was still working class um, and, and was, was subject to that kind of um, discrimination because of their place in the economy. Um, so I think that it's not necessarily about where did you spend your childhood? I think it's about like what, class position you experienced when you were back home um and that's the that's the key bit yeah yeah i did point out like sort of expecting quasi to have sympathy for the black cause like he went to eton as well um so i was just going look goodness sake he's not you know the person to call to speak about windrush he's not he just doesn't care you know what I mean? I think it's a very, it's very interesting. Like if you see Esther from Turning Point, she'll have it in her bio. She came to Twitter for some reason, but she stayed and she stays attacking Dawn Butler constantly. I'm like, girl, are you not tired? Like I wrote an article about it as well. I think basically you can see where someone stands by literally who's defending them. Because anytime you try to have a, a conversation with them or you try to say, look, what are you doing? Or like, this is not, you know, you're an outlier. This is not how the majority of us feel. They, they will send the racists. And I always wonder how, so I wanted to interview half of them and mm -hmm. most of them would not speak to me. In fact, none of them would speak to me. Kerry said she might speak to me at some point, but most of them were like, uh, just wouldn't answer or was just like, no, I'm not doing it. Like Calvin Robinson, uh, Ben, uh, or Bayse, I, I don't know his last part of his name. But you know what? I think I think this is something which because you, you don't you you see racial gatekeeping with it from South Asians. Like I mean, hello, Pretty Patel, um, <laughs> like literal gatekeeping in that case. Yeah. But I think that this is something which isn't which is quite specific in 
the black context because of the way in which an anti-blackness has functioned. So yeah. because anti-blackness functions to sort of say like, you know, you are the most criminal, you are the least civilized, you are, you know, fundamentally not amenable to sort of, you know, ruling class and decent values that you do then have, I think, some black individuals who are on the right who want to be like, I'm not like the others and really mm -hmm. want to like define themselves by that, by going, I'm not like the others and I'm going to show you I'm not like the others by, you know, relentlessly attacking them. And it's also, you know, it chimes with a certain kind of right wing politics because it's so individualist. It's saying like, I don't belong to this collective. You know, I don't have, you know, a place in like a shared struggle or a shared articulation of oppression. You know, I'm me, I'm not like the others and really trying to like distance themselves. Whereas what's different about a figure like Priti Patel or Sajid Javid is that they will talk about their background as if they represent the whole community. And it's like, you know, Priti Patel will be, you know, do her photo shoots at temples. She loves to wear saris. She's, you know, very proud of being culturally distinctive, but she'll say that this is me realistically presenting, you know, representing the Indian community. And I think that that is a difference is like, yeah. I think it's kind of driven it by- I guess as well, um, when you're thinking about the history of the migration of black people to the UK, um, it's quite telling where people have found their natural homes when it comes to the political parties, because I don't think I know of any prominent black conservatives who have risen through the ranks. But if you are to name the prominent African Tories, they're either Ghanaian or Nigerian. And so I can be in a room talking about the migration from Africa and like, and it's a, it's a horrible story that we tell amongst ourselves as well, where people will always be like, oh, when people came over from the binge rush, like the Caribbean people came to work on the trains and they came to work and as nurses, Africans came to study. That's not necessarily the case because I've got relatives who, and I know other people in other African backgrounds, Ghanaian, Nigerian, whatever, also came to do the um, public sector work all the way back from the 50s too. But then it started to pit us apart against each other from the off, from when we started. And so then when you then, as I said, start to rise through the ranks within whichever party, because I'd say, I'll speak for Ghanaians primarily, Ghanaians are definitely naturally conservative with a small c. So, and so then if you're looking at things like individualism, if you're looking at things like property ownership, if you're looking at a smaller state rather than a broader state, I can tell you that there are relatives that I know that may have voted for Brexit because they don't want people to come and take away all our jobs, that there'll be more rising property ownership amongst the West African diaspora um, as well. And, they'll like, pride themselves on entrepreneurship. But the Caribbean story is the same, but the same, but different. But because of the fact that in the main came a different way and they saw the solidarity with things like the trade union movement, that's why they might still remain within the Labour Party. But it's not quite much longer, not with the way yeah. Keir Starmer's, there's a mass exodus, do you know what I mean? We're yeah. literally blurring out Bob Marley, exodus, packing our stuff. <laughs> if Labour carry on the way they're carrying on, I will be, I don't even care if we're still in uh, lockdown, next um, election day, I will stay home. 
I'm not going anywhere. Like, but it is weird. And I think there definitely is a difference between um, the Caribbean experience and the African experience. And even with the way they manifest themselves, I don't know, it's a, it's a chat for another day, but I really do feel Caribbean people when they're Tories are infinitely more embarrassing than African people. <laughs> and I, no, they are. I'm sorry, they are. I just don't know what is wrong with them. They are worse than ever. They are terrible. And uh, I remember, uh, who was it? In fact, I won't name her because I'm right on the show. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd like to, I really would like to talk to <laughs> some black Tories. I know some of them are a bit upset with me and stuff. And I, I'm not, I did offer a few unsolicited hair advice and skincare advice. And I'm sorry. It was a joke. Okay. It was a joke. Please. It was a on. public service. Exactly. Yeah. It was just a joke. Uh, so, <laughs> but we do, we are talking about, so I mentioned it earlier. Like, I remember when, uh, sort of South Asian Twitter were going for Sajid going, I bet he eats lemon and herb Nando's and stuff like that. <laughs> and he got really upset about it. But what I really find interesting and what I find sort of, not just interesting, disturbing, is when you do try to call these people out, they will release racist into your mentions that say stuff that you think to yourself, it's about you as well. You know what I mean? Like they're saying this racist stuff and you are just not, a, you're not challenging it. And that's the part I find disturbing. And Pretty Patel is somebody who we've talked like the gate, racial gatekeeper. <laughs> she is awful in so many ways. Did you see that video that was out this week? But what someone said about her? No. I don't know. Um, like we're grown up basically. Like a lot of our elders will say to us, doesn't matter what you do, you're always going to be an N word to them. Mm. And Pretty Patel, um, we've got the video, haven't we? Yeah, has it come up yet? No, not yet. It will come up in a minute. Um, we will play it. It's got bad language in it as well. Um, I found it pretty disturbing. Um, yeah, there was this guy and he was basically racially abusing Pretty Patel. Mm. Is it the guy who looks quite like the guy from Family Guy? Oh, I've never seen Family Guy. Okay. Sorry, let me shut up. No, 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 no. He was the, the ginger bearded guy. Um, yeah. I think we've lost the screen, but we'll chop yeah, should be just coming. Sorry, I think yeah. I had to change apps learning. Yeah, it is the guy who looks like Oh, it's this guy. Yes. Yeah, so for anyone who didn't see it, this is it. The master race. I was going to okay. say, looking like him and actually is very, very special. Right, here we go. attractive i know i just love that last line i just it just got to my heart i thought we're all in this together i know i was just like at last some like inter-community solidarity like we're in the same boat ladies <laughs> exactly like oh my god i mean oh, there's so much to say and not to say but i think i'm not even going to go into talking about him um, um but, but, he, but he's kind of uh, i find people like that fascinating i've always wanted 
to talk to the people who send me racial abuse and they never say yes because I'm just so curious about who they are I want to know like what's your day like you know what's your relationship with your parents like what led to you you know sending me racist abuse at you know one in the morning I just I want to know I'm always just so curious about who they are and like what context they exist in and for him like the way he adopted a sort of pushed up tone for some of it when mm. he was like a white man's place is you know somewhat under a white man like you know the way he tried to almost like present a Rudyard Kipling kind of vision of social hierarchy and everybody's place whilst also being just like quite obviously like ignorant you know dumb as a box of hair and a complete thug um I was just fascinated by the way he was playing that character while doing it It, you know so you've got the kind of like vulgarity of the slur of like Paki Mm -hmm. whilst also trying to present it as a kind of I don't know, return to like Edwardian or Victorian I think this is the result, I mean, I'm sure it's happened before, but I've never seen it as much as I do now. And this is a result of populism. This is a result of people like Nigel Farage, Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, pretending they're with the common man, Mm. right? They pretend, they sit there and pretend, oh, I'm going to have a pint just like you. And I do remember having to share a dressing room with Nigel Farage in, Mm -hmm. um, for this week, and it was a hundredth episode. And that's why when people say the BBC don't get comedy, I'm like, they do, they do. And they put me in this awful <laughs> dressing room. And I was like, it's just some kind of joke, right? And it was me, him, um, the Hamiltons. I didn't know they were UKIP at the time. I thought they were still Tories. They just, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And he was, they were saying, oh, so do you want a pint, Nigel? They were getting our drinks orders. He was like, no, I want a red wine. And it was like, you know, they don't sit there drinking pints like they say. And I remember when, just after Boris got in, there was this working class guy up north who was a victim of the floods going, Boris, come up here, just have a pint with me, mate. Have a pint. I was like, Boris doesn't want to have a pint with you. But they have successfully Mm. got these people to believe they're the common man. We speak for all of you. We're on your side. Like Trump. I mean, he's got gold thrones in in Trump Tower. And people were still sitting there going, he's like us. He's going to, you know, drain the swamp. And I I don't know how far we've got with it. The other angle... um, you know, well, I'm saying I don't know how far we got with it. I, I don't know if we can pull back from it. It's so no. bad because we have such a compliant press. Um, the other thing I do, I'm curious about is how pretty Patel would feel when she saw that. I couldn't help but wonder because he lumped her in with Muslims and that's something she- yeah. She does like, not fucking like that one bit. <laughs> no, I can imagine. How do you feel? Because you've sat there, you're at Tory party conference and stuff and you've been the one going, I'm, you know, I'm oh, an Australian point system with that grin she does all the time. And I'm just thinking to myself, I, do you know what? I'd like if they ever did a film of this because they're doing films of Brexit and Corona. I want to do one. Um, about the people of colour and I just want to have pretty in front of her computer at night and um, her husband's gone past the door and she's got this video and it's just on a loop and her husband's coming to the store are you coming to bed darling and she goes no I'll be there in a minute and then she's just watching this on the loop crying <laughs> but I mean I think I think in a way this sort of strengthens her position because it gives 
for Conservatives an opportunity to denounce and condemn a very, very egregious and obvious example of racism, right? You know, this guy, he could have existed at any time, like since the 1940s onwards. There's always been that kind of like, you know, street far right racist movement, you know, like my poor grandma when she first came to this country having to like run away from the teddy boys at like Caledonian Road or, you know, the NF when they were like trying to beat yeah. my mum and knew him. There's always been that. And the Conservative Party has had an uneasy relationship with that section of kind of, you know, a very racist, white working class, radicalised pocket. You know, mm. on the one hand, they kind of want their votes, but on the other, you know, you don't want to associate yourself too closely, you know, with it. Um, exactly. What Brexit I was... did was bring down the firewall and say, you guys are our people in a way um but i don't know i just i don't think that that video would be troubling for pretty patel to condemn it's actually quite useful to go see i'm not racist we're not racist we can condemn racism when we see it maybe i'll still like merrily deporting grandparents yeah um, but we did see that didn't we with boris johnson because boris johnson when they were marching through uh, central london Oh no, I think it was the first lockdown, third, 20th lockdown, but they were marching through and they were doing the Nazi salutes and the monkey chants. Mm. Boris came out way stronger than Keir Starmer. Mm -hmm. And he said, these are racist. And I found um, Howard Stern, who I do not normally listen to at all for lots of reasons, but they had brought him onto CNN, I think. He was talking about Donald Trump being very angry about the insurrection because it looks sloppy. And I think you're right. They will always use these people, and they have done throughout time, to be um, attack dogs. You know, they're the ruling class's attack dogs. They will send them in to go and kick black and brown butt whenever they're ready, but they do not want to be associated no. with them. And when the lines do blur a little bit, so I think you're probably right. She'll go, oh, my God, disgusting racism. But she won't, yeah, but she probably won't take it on board. It just also cements that point when she was in Parliament that, um, about how she has said that she has been a victim of racism. And so she's, she's still in Parliament, she said it. If anybody questions her, she can say, look what this guy said. A million people have watched this video. It's continued to go viral. Um, and I'm trying to do what's best for everybody in the, in the country, regardless of whether you're black, brown, white, and everything in between. So there was there was that story. Aisha, can you pull it up? Um, there was that story. Uh, it was reported in the Guardian where thirty Labour MPs, um, mostly black, had written to her and basically kind of come full circle, accused her of gaslighting um, by talking about the racism she's had in her childhood. Like while she's merrily deporting people, black and brown people, like Ash said. Mm -hmm. So it is like she's using it as a as sort of defence. And they wrote to her and basically said that she was, yeah, um, B-A-M-E. Well, yeah. we were not going to get into Bain. It's pronounced Barme. Is it Barme? Barme. Like a noir type of thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, Bain MPs accused Pretty Patel of gaslighting in racism debate. They write to Home Secretary after she raised her own experiences of, of racial abuse. And it comes back to what we said before. We are coming to quite a troubling time. It's never been as prominent as it is now where we have got MPs of colour, black MPs, black MPs of colour, who are literally undermining our experiences mm. in this. And Priti Patel is one of 
like the worst ones. And I think um, one of the quotes they had said from that article was like literally black people were saying, you don't speak for us because the black and the South Asian experience is so different. And I do find it, um, it is different. I'm insulated really from South Asian anti-blackness. Like I always forget how bad it can be because I just have so many, like, you know, the South Asian friends I have are really cool. So I just don't see, and sometimes when I see it, I'm like, whoa, are you guys for real? Are you serious? I but mean- I think, I think you've got to really like understand where that comes from because there wasn't just one colonial dynamic. There mm. were many because of the spread of the British empire. And so South Asians were sort of, you know, became a, global petty bourgeois you know you have those pat patterns of migrations of South Asians to the Caribbean patterns of migration to South Africa and East Africa to play very particular roles in the economy um, you know very very much privileged over the black people who were there not as powerful as you know the white colonial administrator but had a vested interest in maintaining the dispossession of black people in, as part of the colonial rule. Um, mm -hmm. So you've got that element of it. And then you've also got the way in which Indians, and I'm saying Indians specifically because the role of the war on terror has really changed how Pakistanis are perceived. Yeah. Um, but Indians in this country have been seen as something of the model minority yes. because of the way in which, you know, that bourgeois echelon has been able to assimilate into the British professional classes. And it's something which I definitely, I didn't hear so much in my family because my family were always a part of anti-racist movements, which included black people. And also my grandma has always, in her words, hated the Bengali middle class. She can't fucking stand them. Um, but when I was at school and there were other, you know, mixing with like other South Asian people, the disdain for their black peers was just there to see. There was a sense of like too loud, too boisterous, too noisy, not here to work hard, you know, knocking on the door of criminality, even, you know, when you're in year five, um, <laughs> you know, they, they would really been instilled with that like model minority view of themselves, which doesn't exist in isolation. It exists in tandem with anti-blackness. These yeah. two stories are sustaining each other. And I think I saw it where I live, because I, I, um, I live in Wembley. And so I saw firsthand at the last mayoral election, the material I would yeah. receive versus the material that my neighbours on either side would receive. So yeah. my neighbours on either side were, um, are, because they're still here, they, they are Hindu. And so they got very distinct, different material from the same party that my my dad was receiving because I it was I wasn't the named recipient and I was like wow that's actually really I mean it's very good that um Mr Goldsmith did not become the mayor because the for even for within the Asian community in, in inverted commas within the Asian community the fact that you can like point fingers at somebody who is of Pakistani origin like this is absolutely awful and you've specifically targeted the hindu household mm. that's actually wicked so i don't know what 
kinds of material, if you're not living in the most diverse borough in London, what kind of material would be receiving from those powers that be up north or elsewhere about people who look like myself mm. and, and people who are a, um, Pakistani or Bengali, but definitely not Indian because Indians, yeah, they're the doctors, aren't they? Mm -hmm. They're the opticians. As someone who's part Black and part Sri Lankan, um, so kind of have both aspects. Sri Lankans are like um, the Indians. They are, they study, they have all the qualifications. Like me and my siblings and my aunts and uncles are failures because we only have one degree. Like that is not enough degrees. Trust me, it's not, it's like you need to add a zero to get close to the amount of actual necessary degrees. But I feel like my grandpa was an anti-racist campaigner. So like um, Ava said and Ash was saying, you feel insulated yeah. from hearing a lot of the anti, but when it comes to, um, you know, further out in extended family, my brother's partner is um, half Punjabi. So, you know, not her family, but in extended, you actually hear a lot of it, even to, and it's really, the really simple stuff, like the colorism, you know, even the same stuff, I don't want to get too dark. I don't, and really, the really basic stuff that I think you don't really imagine, because you feel like we should be so far from that but even there's the criminality but it's just the really really simple stuff which is ironic because you know a lot of my Sri Lankan family are darker than me you know I, mean, I don't know if this chimes with your experience but I think that the South and this is where I'm going to stop talk, you know talking broad brushes but the South Asian community is actually much less far along the journey of sort of embracing dark skin embracing different hair textures you know Yes. Black people had a kind of a politicized black is beautiful movement. We didn't have that. And we cling to colorism so much mm. more tightly. Um, I just remember being at school and hearing from girls, you know, who were lighter than me going, I don't want to get any darker. And I remember wanting to fight everyone. I was like, fuck <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah. So, um, I think, it would, I mean, obviously bleaching is kind of goes across communities, mm. but even things like hair removal and things like that, there's really, there hasn't been a movement of acceptance of uh, appearance at all, I don't think. And as you know, Sri Lankans, particularly, we're Tamil. Um, mm. I don't know if you can tell by my surname, but yeah, we're Tamil and, you know, they are dark, they're dark, their hair is often, our hair is often really curly, mm. you know, much closer to like a South Pacific Islander look than your kind of light sort of, pesh, um, in, in, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Iranian looking Pakistani yeah. that you would get. So they've got that whole gamut and they are really at the, the darker, most black, looking dare mm. I say it um, I would say don't tell the aunties but mine are cool so it's okay <laughs> I was just thinking when you were talking about hair I was just thinking about the bundles that I see in the shops in Halton and what they would be categorized as and sorry my, my thoughts just went off somewhere <laughs> oh, no we did speak what about a little bit last yeah. week John Barnes actually raised it uh, about where he's from in Jamaica and stuff and him being a light-skinned person we have got it in the Caribbean but I also think like Cindy has raised I think the difference is black women, mm -hmm. like black women have led the natural hair movement. Mm. Black women have gone, you know what? If you don't like us, just go shove it. You know, <laughs> gone, how come all our features, like our lips and our butts, not my mind's black, that's so sad. Another time. Same. It's just like, <laughs> why do you want us, but in a different color? Like mm. the black women have had black girl magic. They've yeah. had black girls camping trip. They have black girls uh, festival. They have so many different things now where we are literally like empowering. Um, like my four-year-old, I empower her every day because I know what's going to come in. And we live in an area, we moved out of London, where if anyone has got any um, sort of black heritage, they tend to be mixed. Like she's one of the only fully 
um, dark skin. Actually, the African uh, people have got like fully black children, but most from Caribbean heritage, like us, as you can see, there's a Dominican flag. Yeah. Uh, we, um, we basically, the children there are mixed. So I was like, I don't want her to grow up here and hate her skin and hate her mm. hair. And I instill, like, you know, every day I'm instilling something. And like, you know, she walked past me the other day and went, I'm really, really cute. And then she carried on walking. Like, she just loves herself. And I think black women have made a really conscious, mm. conscious decision to do so. And I do think, um, what I did want to get onto is like, we do have so many similar experiences and then we have different experiences and then we have the anti-blackness mm. in the South Asian communities as well that you guys have spoken about. And so when can we sit in solidarity together and when do we need to take a step back? Because sometimes you will hear, like they'd said sort of with Pretty Patel, the black MPs had said, um, the quote was, we are disappointed at the way you've used your heritage and experiences of racism to gaslight the very real racism faced by black people and communities across the UK. And that's what they said to her. So, I mean, like, how are we going to move forward, you know, when it's so entrenched and it's so deep? I mean, I think that what we've got to do is move beyond identity politics and into anti-racism. So the reason why Pretty Patel is doing what she's doing is within that whole realm of my lived experience is legitimate and valid and kind of all there is. You know, black and brown Tories love identity politics. Don't believe what they say. They wield identity politics so effectively because what they do is they use their identity as a shield for the racism of the political project that they stand for. So when Sajid Javid became Home Secretary and it was a whole big thing about, oh, the first Barmay Home Secretary, immediately following the Rindrush scandal, um, I believe those two things would be unconnected. Um, you know, he's standing there saying, my parents were immigrants, you know, trying to humanize through his identity an inhumane and brutal system. So that's why I kind of think, you know, the left needs to mount a criticism of identity politics, which comes from the perspective of anti-racist struggle and organizing. Because I think the more we get trapped purely talking within the realm of the experiential, which is important, but the more we get trapped in it, um, you know, the more ground we're ceding to the right to do the same thing for, for nefarious ends. Within anti-racist struggle, and this is why I think sometimes we get hung up on terminology, I use the phrase people of colour because it comes from an organising context in the United States where you had, you know, aspects of the black radical movement, you had, you know, anti-racist organising from, you know, Hispanic and Chinese communities. And you also had, you know, the indigenous rights movements going on and they were saying, well, how do we create a shared umbrella for the work that we're doing um, which is sort of fighting the same enemy, which is, you know, white settler supremacy. And so that for me is why I use the term, not because it's a term of identity, you know, people of color is not who I am, but it's what I want to signal in terms of what I want to do, right? Is that sense of, of a shared enemy. Um, and I think that we need to think about how we articulate that shared terrain of struggle, which says that the anti-blackness which is in the South Asian community is part of that same enemy of white supremacy. And so I've got a question and I'm thinking about growing up um, 
we all, when we were growing up at one point, black and Asian people were all called black. So when did it stop being black? Mm. And secondly, why are people of Asian descent offered the, the decency to be called Asia as a region that you come from, but we who are black, it's not black African or African or Caribbean. We're all lumped underneath this color of, of our being, the color of our skin. Mm. Because even underneath the black category, as you've said, there's no one Asian experience. The, the black experience is completely different as well. You've got people who've come from the Caribbean, you've got people who've come from West Africa, then you've got people who've come from East Africa. Obviously there are people from North Africa and South Africa as well. But when you're thinking about the big migrations that mm. came to the UK, underneath the black umbrella, those are the three. So my experience as a person who's of Ghanaian heritage, is that Ghana and Nigeria were class of neighbors because it was colonized by Britain. It's a very different experience from somebody who's Ivorian or Mali. In certain respects, it's similar, but dissimilar to my, my Jamaican best friend or, or whatever. And it's very, very different to somebody who came to the UK in the 90s from Eritrea or from Somalia. And so within our community as well, in the big brackets, Within the, there's like an intra-community battle as well, because then you've got the, what's the words, the people from the Horn of Africa who are like trying to find their identity and they've got similarities to people who might have come from Asia, sorry, East African Asians, their, 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 their struggle might be similar because you've got, you, you grew up in that same neck of the woods compared to Ghana, which I learned today, the difference, the distance between Ghana and the UK is the same as the difference between the UK and um, Ghana and Kenya. You cannot pass all into the same. Mm. I think it's just um, it's a matter of laziness, really. I think on behalf of sort of people outside of our communities, that's why we ended up with Bain. Yeah. Just, oh, there they are. Go oh, call them something, kind of thing. I think it's just like it's so complicated. But I think when we came and we found that we had our struggles, and you know. You had the whole South Hall riots and you had whatever, um, you know, the, I think people end up going, look, at the moment, like, they're going out P-bashing, they're going out M-bashing, come together and let's just call ourselves something. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, at that point of emergency, you have to. But then, as you said, as you progress, you're like, well, hold on, we've actually got different struggles from each other. Hmm. And I think when you are such a small part of a country and you have, like, a, quote, unquote, like, enemy that you all just decide this is what we're going to do and I have found sort of frustration inside of that in the same way you have the same way Ash has like hold on a second I should say you know um I'm in, from India very different from someone from Pakistan and oh I didn't even know 2011 there was an issue between the two but that's another, another <laughs> until I went to India I did not realize there was an issue and that's how little I knew um, so it's kind of like, you guys seem to be fighting a lot. Are you okay? Who could possibly have caused this? Yeah. Who is renowned? <laughs> Who's among us would yeah. put a random border between two countries and have them fight to the death over that for years? Who? I mean, exactly. answers exactly. on a postcard, guys. It's like Britain being like, okay, we are, we're going to leave you alone, but just before we go, yeah, just before we yeah. go, here is some syntax. 
Bye. <laughs> I do love like Amir Rahman had a, a bit about that where he was talking about he goes, I don't I want white people to help me fix anything. Nothing. He was like, if my television breaks, falls on the floor and smashes and the white person goes, I'll help you. He goes, no, no, because you'll help me. And all those little bits of smashed television are going to get up and start fighting each other. Get away from me. <laughs> it's just kind of like, what on earth? And I do think, yeah, we do have to have the conversations and sort of progress it. So because there are differences between us, and I think Ash, like something had come up in the last couple of weeks uh, when it came to an author called The Slum Flower. Mm. That is a thing that is raging on at the moment. And I don't want to talk about The Slum Flower too much because we did invite her on the show and um, she didn't respond. And I said like to talk about people when they're not here. She, she's mm. welcome to come on if she wants to talk. But I want to sort of move on from the actual what happened because there was a lot of... Um, people with bad feeling because you mm. wrote basically what the slum flower has done now i'm gonna just be honest about this so what the slum flower has done is she went on to her instagram she's an influencer really yes. and she yeah what a time to be alive um without getting into all the politics because i know a lot of people have a lot of issues with a lot of the stuff she says i've had some issues with it myself i've kind of got issues with it and on the other hand she's like i'm too old for this shit so um it's kind of like but the thing that she'd done, right, is she'd gone on, I think it was on her Instagram, put her PayPal up and told white people to pay her reparations, okay? And quite a lot of white people did. Now me, <laughs> I think that's hilarious, right? <laughs> I think it's hilarious. I don't have a problem with it. I don't have a problem with it. I know a lot of black women did. And I know, um, I kind of just left it to her age mates to, to be arguing about that. You know, it caused a lot of problems. There was a lot of back and forth. Go, I don't, I thought it was funny. I mean, at the end of the day, if, if you can't put up a PayPal, do you know what I mean? Uh, and you say, why PayPal? Pay me reparations. I don't know how she speaks, I'm just guessing. But like, uh, I, I don't know why, I guess like that. But why, <laughs> and they wanted to pay her, then I think, sis, get your coins, I don't care. <laughs> okay, so talking, if I take out the, um, not talking about her, um, I've been on Clubhouse for the past few weeks mm, and um, people have their cash apps out there. If I had, if I was moderating a room, I might get paid if I had my cash app and PayPal there. And some people are getting paid just to speak. Um, and so I guess it's more for the people who gave her the money rather than her asking for it in the same way that I want to be a millionaire. I'd, I'm not doing anything about it. If you want to give me a million pounds, um, good luck to you. Um, good luck to you. But I'm sure, and I guess it's keeping her current. Um, it's one thing I don't actually understand um, about what, it, what, what influences are, because I realise maybe, like yourself, Alva, I'm a bit too old for all of this. Me too. Um, and me, so me too. I am too old. Like, influences was like the first pop culture moment which, like, passed me by. And then I was like, what, who's this Caroline Calloway person? Like, where did she come from? Like, but you wrote an article it. about it, Ash. You wrote an mm. article, Navara, about... Um, so do you want to say like, how you felt about yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, so how, how I felt about it was that what was interesting to me was seeing the language of collective struggle. You know, the global movement for reparations is an international anti-imperialist um, collective demand for restitution to be made to a people mm -hmm. to heal and to restore and to deal with um 
you know, not just the legacies from the trauma of slavery, but the way in which, you know, the indebted uh, relationship between the global south and the global north is a sort of successor to, you know, slavery, you know, the way in which housing discrimination, uh, criminal justice discrimination works in the global north to sort of replicate the economic dispossession of black peoples, you know, it's a collective demand. And so I did think that there was a huge amount of cynicism in, in extracting that and saying individual reparations can be made to me as a individual influencer who is a black woman. And the reason why I say, I think this is cynical is I've got no objection to the Slumflower or Florence Given or Caroline Calloway or anybody else being paid for their work as an influencer. I think that's completely legitimate, right? It's a form of work, go for it. For me, the cynicism was in allying it to an anti-racist cause when actually it has nothing to do with the terrain of collective struggle whatsoever. Because if you start saying, well, hang on, why can't individual reparations be a thing? Well, doesn't that just privilege and prioritize those of us who've got platforms and followers? You know, am I the person who really needs the individual reparations or is it you know, the trade union organizer who's been working with the United Voices of the World, you know, to keep cleaners safe during the pandemic? Um, or is it, you know, a struggling single parent who is really financially hard up against it, doesn't have time to brand themselves online? So for me, it's a question of the sort of the appropriateness of the use of the word reparations. And then also within that, you know, the way in which it prioritizes fame and visibility over perhaps need or political usefulness. So that for me was the issue. I don't have a problem with Slumflower as, as an individual at all. I think that her as a phenomenon has come from the weaknesses in anti-racist organizing and anti-racist demands. It means that you've got a bunch of socially conscious and recently awakened white people who've just learned, hang on, I'm qu quite central to upholding an unequal society. And then we've given them nothing to do. We've not even given them like glitter glue and scissors to like sit at the back of the classroom. They don't know what to do with this new knowledge that they have. Because where white people are in terms of consciousness about racism now, on the left, miles away from where it was 10 years ago absolutely miles away um but we've not given them anything to do so then when someone comes along and says give me money of course they go okay sure you know we've got to give them i think a better job in the movement so i think i might have to disagree because i i guess it'll be the same obviously i'm a black woman and as far as I'm concerned, the people who are the, orchest the orchestrators of racism and have benefited from racism should be having the conversations amongst themselves of how they can destabilize de de the racist structures um, themselves in the same way that as a woman, it's not for me to keep on telling men about how to, um, to well, deconstruct patriarchy. They know it because they're the ones who are the architects of it. And so if these people are genuinely really interested in handing over their power within whichever structure that they have, they've already got the book, they've seen it, they've been, they've been beneficiaries of it for over 400 years. Whether you're talking about um, me as a black woman to, to yourselves as an Asian woman, it's, it's the same thing, they know. 
And quite frankly, they probably don't care. We've seen since, I don't like to say since the Black Lives Matter movement because I think it's quite disingenuous, but we've seen over the advent of social media because we've seen many people get killed on, on screen. We saw when Stephen Lawrence was murdered. We saw when even like when this comes to something as, as horrific as Grenfell Tower in this country that the powers that be, if they want to do something, they will do. There's no reason for us to wait to have a black person, an Asian person, tell them, actually, this is what you need to do at all. I'm sorry. I'm I, sure. I, 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 really, I really disagree with that. And I think you've, like, let's make a historical comparison to what was going on in the 1960s. 1960s, you've got, you know, one, anti-colonial struggle going on, right? Mm -hmm. Kicking off everywhere. Two, mm -hmm. you've got, you know, the black power movement mm -hmm. in the United States. Three, you've got the anti-Vietnam War movement, uh, which was hugely politicizing for young white people. And because all these things were going on at the same time, you ended up with shared organizing spaces, with you know, people who were involved in the black power movement, with people who were you know, involved in anti-imperialist struggle, who'd connected that to the Vietnam War. And that shared um, space, Right, that kind of opening up of the struggle and saying, hang on, all these things are really connected. And, you know, there are there's a role for white people in this, um, mm -hmm. particularly with with the with the anti-Vietnam War movement. I think it made the cause of anti-racism much stronger than what we've got now. Because I do think that, like, you know, we say, like, oh, you know, white people already know what to do. I don't think, you know, you average millennial who's sort of renting somewhere has the first clue what to do you know with the privileges and the powers that they've been afforded because it's not as if they're like oh I'm an employer and I can employ somebody or like oh I'm you know I can I'm really wealthy so I can like donate all this money they've got, got the first fucking clue and so I think that you know dealing with the imperfections that we all have the contradictions and the power dynamics and the histories of hurt that we've done to one another is so essential to have that shared organizing space and shared terrain of struggle and I think that that's why we haven't necessarily had the gains secured by these iterations of anti-racist struggle as when you did before where there was a lot more overlap between trade unions anti-imperialism anti-colonialism black power so agree with you ash in terms of the shared organizing spaces because i think they were integral i mean jesus the black panthers were talking to the guides from the appalachians right i mean that is an extreme um uh, cross-section but i think they're sort of in a way they're two different issues so for me one of them is definitely sharing organizing spaces no way of getting anywhere against white supremacy and structural racism unless we do it together there's no there's just no chance i think in terms of this it actually talks to one of the things we spoke about before um when we were talking about wiley getting pulled in and sort of taught or spoken to by his own i think for us as black people it always feels um, nerve-wracking when somebody from another culture is trying to is reining us in or talking about us or critiquing our behavior because every time we're critiqued every time we're criticized it is it is weighty and dripping with so much else so I can sit here and I know you're not a racist you're the complete reverse you would fight on the front line with me at a protest wherever I guess I know that and I totally believe that and so, you know, I could see it and I, it was a good article 
um, it's just that thing. I think there's an inherent um, reticence and reluctance and discomfort when someone from outside and, you know, mm. I'm not quite outside. We are both South Asian as well, but it still there feels there's a reticence to feel that and hear that. And I'm sure you probably understand if you were reading it as something, you know, if the situations were reversed, which I know feels like a kind of cheap shot saying that. I can, I can kind of see it from like what everyone has, has said. I agree with Elaine in terms of I'm not a white person's teacher. Don't come to me for lessons. I haven't got time for you. I'm dealing with my own stuff. There's so much information out there right now. I mean, just the other day on Twitter, and I stopped doing it, but I just thought, just for a second, I will talk to a left-wing white person about racism on the left. It got to the point. I was like, I'll go away. I said, I'm not going to do this with my day. I'm not going to have it. Um, I do see what um, Ash is saying, like we have to club together yeah. um, to yeah. fight these things. But like Aisha said, there's something inherent anti-blackness within those other cultures mm. of color and i'm not mm. gonna lie when i saw the article about slumflower I, I known you i known you since how old were you i was 18 when we first met liar but she was a little she was, baby she was underage drinking she was like, <laughs> like i remember you from when you were young and stuff so i've known you but i had to think why do i feel a type yeah. of way that mm. you've written about slumflower i really think i thought we'll get her do you know what i mean i think it mm. is like uh, Lara had said the black Jewish woman in the first article, uh, first article, the first episode about mm. Wiley. Listen, we've got this. We'll get our own. Mm. We'll pick this one up. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, the whole joke, like when you see like a, a black person doing wrong or when David Lammy was doing something like black people joke, which one of us is going to go and collect him? <laughs> go and get him, please. Go round them up, round them up. Just like bring them in. Do you know what I mean? And I think people who don't know you, Ash, for as long as I've known you, or people who don't see it from that academic point of view that you see it, right? And the way you intellectualize racism and the struggle, just saw you go for a black woman who is, you know, a lot of black people have issues with her. I mean, so I guess I just don't quite share the same feeling. And I think that it's also because I've never experienced anti-blackness. So because I've never experienced anti-blackness where you know, you are having to deal with what's coming at you from other communities of color, other people who experience racism. I think that's maybe why I don't share the same feeling of, you know, if there was a South Asian acting up, Priti Patel, you know, or Sajid Javid, that somebody from, you know, outside the community, you know, being critical of her. I don't see it as like, let me go get my auntie. Um, I, I, I don't, have that feeling and I think that it comes from having had a different experience of racism I also think that so I, for me it's also a political value so I can see how it's come from me not having experienced certain things but also as a political value something that I hold is that it's not just about you know saying here are the boundaries of the community and we operate within them I do think that you know we have slipped into a kind of like atomized and individualized way of thinking about racism which has left us disempowered and I think part of that is sort of you know saying that this is South Asian people's business and this is Muslim people's business and this is you know black people's business within that obviously you know you as black people will speak with a greater authority than me the same way that you know a credible witness does you know, from having seen and experienced, you know, firsthand. Um, but we do have 
a shared social reality that we've got to negotiate in order to make movements happen. So I suppose that's why I don't share the same thing of going, it has to be somebody from this background and it has to be someone from that background. Um, and it, I think it comes from both my politics, but also a lack of that experience. Yeah, and I, I guess- think preparations, what she was speaking about, is such an inherently black thing. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? I think it's just such, it's so tied to, to well, the kind of thing she was talking about, so tied to Africa, Africanness and the descendants of slaves. I think that's why people seem to have a problem with it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's it, reparations has its origins in the context of slavery. Um, the first individual reparations, which were paid to emancipated slaves in the United States. You then have the demand for collective reparations coming from that. It was an extension of that legal principle. So it has that connection and that origin. It's also then been used within the context of indigenous struggles with Palestine, even the Irish, anti-colonial, you know, it's been used within the context of anti-imperial struggles. And so I think that, you know, being able to say this has its origins in this context of slavery it also has been mobilized and used in other organizing contexts as well. That's also where I trouble how we draw the boundaries of like, you know, it has been, what is but I mean, It has been, but I kind of feel like it has a lot of, because of black people, we've just constantly been struggling. So there's mm. a lot of language in different movements that has been taken from, from black people. It's like, you know, even Black Lives Matter is, then there was Muslims Lives Matter, and mm. there was, obviously there are black Muslims and all that, but, there's always, because of our language, even mm. if you speak in within the Muslim community, like I, I guess we could say, because it came from Malcolm X, we kind of got a shared one again. Um, like with house- <laughs> We've got a split custody of, of Brother Malcolm. Yeah, Malcolm, Max, Malcolm and, um, and uh, Muhammad Ali, we, we share those. Um, <laughs> I share them both. But I mean, there is, so when people, when he was speaking about the house blacks and the field, like the house Negroes, the field Negroes, it was a, in a black context. Mm. Muslim people have come and taken that. And I don't, I don't care because they have, you know, I don't mind that kind of thing. But I do think to say that we all share the struggles and stuff, which means we can all speak on everybody else's. I don't, I don't agree with it. I don't feel it. See, but I just, I, I just think that like, you know, yes, yes, you can. I don't want to say as a Muslim to say, you know, non-Muslims can't speak on Islamophobia and can't, you know, critique yeah, and offer an opinion. I, I, I really passionately believe that. Yeah. If we're talking about each other's struggles, and I speak about Islamophobia a lot, mm. but when it comes to the inter, like, um, Muslim, you know, fractions, battles, I step the hell back because it's, it's not my business. I think that Muslim people should be leading on that kind of thing. So irrespective of whether there's, like, you know, when I did the demonstration for Trayvon Martin down in, you know, um, and people were like, what are all those Muslims doing here? And I was like, if who else will understand stop and search but from them? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, the airport, like we can even pass through the airport quicker than they can. So I think look, we should get together on those things. But I think in terms of when it comes to other things, it is, is going to get, people are going to feel annoyed. Do you know what I mean? I, 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 do, I do understand that. I like. did. I really felt in my stomach when I saw you, like, why are you writing about Slumflower? Like, we got her. I think like someone on Galden got her. I think Shardine Taylor Stone, she gets everyone. Like, <laughs> just like, we got this, we got her. She's, you know what I mean? It, 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 I, don't, I could be wrong on this. They no. were like, um, you know, younger black people, younger Nigerian people, they all had her. And I think it's also, I guess what it boils down to is understanding our different intersectionalities. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, that's where the bottom line draws, 
um, draws down. As I said, and as I said at the top, like I've watched and I've admired you. And like after this, when we're allowed to go outside, you're somebody that I would want to sit down and jam with and, and whatever. However, um, yes, I do have for myself, I do have Muslim members of my family, but like Ava, I could not talk about what my cousin-in-law faces because yes, she's a black woman, but she's a hijabi. Me, if you see pictures of me on social media, it's the complete opposite of a hijabi. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I'm a queen. <laughs> hijabi. Um, and so I guess it's about respecting these things. And I think also because you're a woman as well, um, and we've, and that's why I talked about um, the patriarchy conversation. We could take it all the way back to the different roots of feminism, mm. about how um, a lot of the time black women may or may not have been excluded. And I guess within the sunflower context, if you're looking at it from a black feminist context, then like maybe get the black feminist to speak to her and tell her, "Girl, behave yourself," and then you can come in as like the good auntie and maybe like say, and this is the reasons why it's also looks problematic elsewhere. But um, I do think that it's, re it's really hard. It's, I mean, like if, if we all lived in a really nice care bear, lovely world, mm. everyone get involved in all the conversations and then you wouldn't necessarily face backlash because I know that you are coming from a good place and I haven't shared my opinions about what, about the slums out of things like have, as I said, oh, no, I don't, I'm, I'm too old for that. Yeah, I can't be bothered with it. Yeah. I mean, one of the uh, things that's kind of within that article, because I think it got sort of seen very much as like an anti-slum flower article rather than what it was, was sort yeah. of taking stock of influencer activism. Yeah. Um, and what I think slum flower had done was kind of born from the platform that she uses. It's mm -hmm. what influencer activism is about. It's the kind of logical endpoint of this way of doing things. Mm -hmm. Within that, I was pretty harsh on Florence Given as well. Um, you know, I said that hers was a book that should have been a tweet and it wasn't sort of, you know, pick, picked up in that similar way. And it's perfectly obvious why. It's because there isn't an active role of anti-Blackness affecting Florence Given, that could be shaping how I relate to her. Whereas that is 100% a dynamic with the sunflower thing. Um, but I think that it's sort of important for me sometimes to go hang on what this article was about was the way in which sunflower embodies these things about influencer activism. Yeah. And I think that when somebody has a public platform when they've written books on feminism and that's what they do, um, and they present themselves as an anti-racist activist, then it does mean that you are going to get people from outside the community commenting and, and, and making critiques and passing judgments. I think that, you know, if we're talking about a context of an individual just been popping off on Twitter, I probably wouldn't have written an article about okay. it. Because um, I'd be like, who is this person? Yeah. You know, it's not actually important. Um, and if I'd seen, you know, Shardine and, you know, Barbara Natiri and, you know, these wonderful black feminists, like, you know, collecting them, I'd go, that's handled. But I think when it's, you know, contact somebody with a huge Instagram following and best-selling books, then you do start kind of having a more porous boundary of who gets to comment. And so I think that that for me is like, I completely get where you guys are coming from. And I think I just, it, it's a disagreement. <laughs> No, no, that's fine. And I think the following is definitely 
something to bear in mind because I've seen it in other contexts again in a new playground that I'm playing in where people with massive followings like they can call what's, what's that phrase um, where you say fire on something in the cinema and it causes a massive ruckus oh yeah Ooh, but little old me Elaine with my 800 followers it might go up after this um, but 800 followers it doesn't really mean anything or they might just look at me and think I'm mad <laughs> Aisha, you're going to say something because we're going, we're going into Black Women's Hour territory, which is like two hours. Oh, we are. Yeah, it's getting, it's getting blacker by <laughs> the minute. <laughs> um, first thing was, Ash, if you're an auntie, uh, the auntie territory, then I don't know what I'm um, a great grandma. Like, <laughs> I've been <laughs> an auntie age yet. But also, I think there really, there really was a definite distinction. And I think that's where I actually struggled with the article, because I completely agree with you. It's like the bastardization of woke. You know, these are real serious terms yeah. that were come up with for real desperate reasons. These were needed pieces of language that oppressed people used to describe our struggle. And she's flippantly used it. So these before my opinions start rolling out of my mouth. <laughs> Let me just dress back. But she, you know, took it flippantly. And, it, and so I think you have every right as somebody who's part of the struggle and believes in the struggle to disagree and take her to task about that. But obviously that was where I think for me, the unease was, it's just that really weird inherent, like Abra and I were saying, we couldn't get over, and Elaine actually, but we're all saying we couldn't get over that weird feeling. And I, it's hard to know what that's more to do with because I in essence agree with yeah. the principle of the article linguistically and struggle wise in terms of you know a, sort of a bastardizing the language of oppression and using <laughs> sort of as a last question sort of tying up do you think like um they'll ever there was a question that came in from um somebody called Andy who I will um I'll get it up in a minute because my I have no luck with these phones like my home button's broken so I've got like a digital one screen. So Andy had asked, since you know it did bring the, the subject of reparations back to the forefront again, and I know we have the Colston Four, which we didn't have time to talk about, the trial's still going on, and Bristol are quite, the activists in Bristol are people who are behind the reparations movement. Andy had asked, is there a defining point where we think that governments will be forced to, to um, pay reparations? to the African communities? I mean, it... Others face. <laughs> That's what I was like, you know what I mean? Like when people go, slums are spoiling it. We're oh. not gonna get reparations. I was like, oh, what? that's spoiling it. <laughs> no, I mean, I, and that's the thing is that, you know, I don't I don't think she's you know, spoiling reparations or making it less likely for the movie. No, that happen. wasn't coming for you. You, you, know, general, you know, the conversation was just great. You, right. you know, I don't, I don't, uh, with the greatest respect to her and her platform, the career she's built, I just, I don't think she's got that power to, to, <laughs> yeah. to spoil it. Um, but I think, you know, so what, what does it mean to force a government to do something, right? What do you, what are the ingredients you need in terms of, um, movement on the ground, representation in parliament, the demand being made uh, by the governments of African and Caribbean and formerly colonized nations. You know, there's a lot of moving parts here which would or wouldn't make it happen. I do think that even if it hadn't been called reparations, had Corbyn and McDonnell and Diane Abbott gotten to form a government, you would have seen a change in Britain's geoeconomic orientation you know John McDonnell I think was talking about you know for green technology you know suspending the IP and the patents so that the global south which is 
on the front line in terms of you know climate change would be able to access these technologies um you know for for much much cheaper um and i think that there would have been a sense of shifting britain's relationship to the countries it formerly colonized from extractive to collaborative would that have been reparations as such no i don't think it would have gone all the way but it would have been a hell of a lot better and actually by not calling it reparations you could kind of get away with it you know just don't tell the white people it's reparations <laughs> i agree yeah i um anyone got anything else to add i think we're gonna wrap it up now because we have gone so long. So guys, just stay on the couch. Like when we say goodbye to everybody, I uh, just want to say thank so you to you guys and just stay on when we stop recording. Has anyone got anything to add? I've pointed out my Dominica flag thing. <laughs> That's what I've put up. Mimi made beautiful. me put that up. Huh? It's beautiful. Like it. We've it's got stunning. Uh, a probably bit like cuss tweets and texts from Beijing people going, what about us? Denied your heritage. <laughs> like, I do like the Dominican flag because it's got the parrot on. And my auntie said the reason we have the parrot on our flag is because the people can't keep their damn mouths shut. <laughs> um, so, it, it looks like um, a zhuzhed up Bangladeshi flag to me. I'm just like, ah, oh, it's the Bangladeshi flag with like elements. I didn't realise, like when we were talking about indentured servants and stuff coming over from South Africa, I didn't realise mangoes weren't ours. No. Nutmeg isn't ours as well. They brought it over to plant. I mean, talk about long-term view of colonialism. That when I found out that chilies weren't ours, that we didn't have chilies until the Americas were colonized. Because oh. that's, where, that's where all peppers come from. So chilies were introduced to Indian and South Asian cuisine relatively late. Wow. That was the oh, face I made. The I'm sorry, as if my grandpa will literally have raw chilies and my dad and my uncles and my brother on the side of their plate and they'll take a bite of food and a bite of a chili and a bite of food yeah. and a bite of a chili. It's and like an 18th century addition to South Asian cuisine. That's not enough time. But we took to it. We took to it. <laughs> yes, oh. we made use of it. Take note, white people, we made use of it. So, uh, <laughs> thank you so much, guys, for coming on. We really, really appreciate it. We can talk longer, but you're not, you know. Thank yeah. you. We it was such a, a lovely conversation to have. Yeah. Like, I just love the way you guys handle things with such nuance and sensitivity. And you're able to, like, get to the heart of an issue without overly simplifying it i just think that like the dynamic that you know oh, you have as a host is, is just so great and that's what we're aiming for honestly and this is what i'm saying like we're getting certain like right-wing people if you have watched this episode you can come on i won't mention the word exfoliate i won't mention blue mountain hair grease i won't say anything just come <laughs> on you'll have a lovely environment within which to chat. <laughs> It's yeah. going to be great. Thank you to my gorgeous sidekick, Aisha. It's looking very yeah. sultry and gorgeous today. Thank yeah. you, Ash, for coming on, even though that you were ill. And if you do have a baby, call it Black Woman's Hour. And again... <laughs> is that called, would that be cultural appropriation? That's where I think I should be staying in my lane, which is like the child I would have with my incredibly white boyfriend. I'm not naming it Black Woman's Hour. You're not going to get me cancelled like this, Abba. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Elaine, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, we're going to have you back to talk about books and yeah. all sorts of stuff, you know, yeah. whatever. Um, so, guys, thank you very much. We had a really lovely time. We thank did. you. Bye. Join us next week for episode four. We will announce the guests across social media, as always, because we are still black and we haven't put them yet. <laughs> all right, guys. Talk to you later. Thank you. Bye. Bye, everyone. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Bye.